0: Hello and welcome to episode 39 of the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Hope you're enjoying a wonderful summer, everyone. My name is Brian Dinovelis. This time we are honoring a legend on this episode, an innovator, an icon, a Hall of Famer. He was quite simply one of the greatest coaches and the greatest teachers and basketball minds of all time. We're talking about none other than Pete Carrill, who died on Monday at the age of 92. Now if you look at his record, Carrill won 514 games in his coaching career, and 503 of those, all but 11 came at Princeton. all without a single scholarship player. Because of course, there are no scholarships in the Ivy League. You won't find an NCAA championship on his resume, but you will find an NIT championship in 1975 when the tournament was still a big deal. That team, by the way, finished 12th in the country in the final poll. You'll also find 13 Ivy League championships in his 29 seasons at Princeton. But look, Pete Carrillo, as much as it was about wins, and losses, and titles. It was more about the respect and the admiration of his peers, coaches, players, colleagues, fans, those who respected Pete Carrillo, and in some cases feared for the way he prepared his teams and got the most out of them. Each and every year. Do me a favor. Go ahead and Google the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. Not the all-time winningest, just the greatest, the best. Odds are, on any list you find, you won't see Pete Carrillo in the top 10 or probably even in the top 20. You know the names. John Wooden, Mike Shashevsky, Dean Smith, Adolph Rupp, Jim Calhoun, Jim Beheim, Guy Lewis, Eddie Sutton, Roy Williams, on and on and on. You won't find Pete Carrill on those lists, but there is no question. When you ask any of those coaches who are still alive if Pete Carrillo should be on the list, and unanimously they will say yes. Because he is in the top 10, heck, probably the top five most influential basketball coaches of all time. He implemented and perfected an offense that college basketball fans know It's simply known as the Princeton offense. This offense has been copied and mimicked and modified and borrowed and tweaked by teams up and down the youth programs all the way up to the NBA. When he went to the NBA after he retired from Princeton, Pete Carrill in the early 2000s, The Sacramento Kings, where he was an assistant coach, ran it and perfected and adopted the Princeton offense in the NBA. Pete Carrillo didn't invent the Princeton offense. This was an offense when basketball first began, right? It's a motion offense, a series of passes and cuts and backdoor and sharing the basketball. Think about what I just said, sharing the basketball, motion offense. The Kings ran it. They routinely went to the playoffs, won division titles in the early 2000s. They took it all the way to the Western Conference Finals, running that Princeton offense. But think about what I just said. What team today reminds you, in the NBA, of emotion, passing, cutting, back doors? Did you say the Golden State Warriors? It might not be the Princeton offense. And they run Princeton offense sets. Carrill's team stressed team above the individual star. And by now, you know, or you've heard, or you remember, or you've seen highlights of two of the most memorable NCAA tournament games of all time, where Princeton was. Heavy underdogs against the bluest of blue bloods, against number one teams and defending champions. The first came in 1989, and it wasn't a victory, but it was a loss where Princeton nearly became the first 16 seed to ever beat a one seed. And if you were seeding that tournament one through 64, Georgetown was most definitely number one, and Princeton was most definitely number 64. They came within a whisker of shocking Alonzo Mourning and Dikembe Mutombo and John Thompson's mighty Hoyas losing 50-49. to If not for an Alonzo Mourning defensive play on the last shot of the game, did he foul him? Replay show, he probably got more wrist than ball. But Princeton was applauded for taking Georgetown to the brink and nearly pulling off the biggest upset in NCAA tournament history at that time. That game, that performance by Kirill's Tigers has been credited with saving March Madness. There were people, athletic directors at the time, trying to take automatic bids away from the smaller conferences in order to give the power conferences More bids. They felt like too many of the little guys didn't belong. They couldn't hang with the big boys. But that performance ensured that there would be room at the table and a ticket at the dance for the little guys, the George Masons, the UMBCs, and of course, locally, the St. Peters. If Princeton didn't come that close, to shocking Georgetown and proving all of those cynics wrong. We might not see March Madness the way it is today. And we wouldn't have seen a 16 seed like UMBC upset Virginia or St. Peter's take down mighty Kentucky this year. Carrillo proved them all wrong. And eventually, eventually, after so many near misses and near upsets, Broke through in 96 when Princeton stunned defending national champion UCLA. 43-41, a 13 seed beating a fourth seed. Was it the biggest upset of all time? No, but Princeton and Pete Carrill finally had their day in the sun and the headline in the Princeton school newspaper the next day read, David, 43, Goliath, 41. Go back and YouTube that game. What a clinic in how to defend, and how to play team basketball, work the shot clock, ball control, take high percentage shots. But listen, Princeton didn't shoot the lights out that game. And as a matter of fact, they only hit one free throw. It was more about their defense holding the Pac-10 champions and defending national champions to 41 points and having a chance at the end and executing the play exactly the way the coach had drawn up the high-low backdoor pass and layup by Gabe Llewellis. Pete Carrill was a mastermind. He was innovative, he was old school when old school was not cool. He made it look cool, and he made others notice. There were coaches like P.J. Carlissimo at Seton Hall who didn't want to play him. And there were coaches John Thompson, John Cheney, Raleigh Massimino, Jim Valvano, and others who had more talent were often outcoached by Pete Carill, and admittedly so. Pete Carrill made his players believe when everyone else didn't think they had a chance. One of Carril's former players on that team that shocked UCLA in 96 is now the head coach at Princeton. He's been there for a decade. Mitch Henderson joins me on the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Coach, thanks for coming on. Uh, and first of all, you know my condolences because we truly lost a legend.
1: Brian, it's so good to be here with you, and thank you for that. And it's been, um, you know, forty-eight out last forty-eight hours or so of us getting an opportunity to uh, those of us that played for him. Uh, but in, in my role here, to, to get it uh, as the head coach, get a talk chance to talk about somebody in Coach Carroll who influenced me and and so many others in such a huge way. Uh, I'm looking forward to to doing that with you. And then also uh, honoring him in the coming months, which I think is uh, very important for us here at Princeton.
0: So uh, we'll get back to how you're going to honor him. Uh, let's just talk about what Coach Carrill meant to you as a player, a person, a coach, uh, and others uh, that you played with.
1: You know, I, I think it's best for me to talk about it in, in pieces and, Um, so, you know, I had two different chapters with him, um, first as a player, you know, in the recruiting process. And I would be, um, I I wouldn't be the only player would say this, but I remember on my official visit, he comes up and he, and he's, uh, we're sitting at Conti's, which is the pizza place here in, in Princeton. And he says, uh, you know, Hey, we like you, you can't shoot. Uh, you don't dribble the ball very well with your left hand, but we'd like to have you. And um, there was a very much of a culture of honesty right up front that you, you didn't know then what it was like to play for him, but you got a sense that, you know, we we knew then that he was, he was already a legend. You know, I'm, I'm getting to him at the end of his career. This is 1994 actually. And, um, and then, you know, it, hit, it was a bit of a, of a test, of a, of a measure of who you were to see if you could um, still say yes to come after hearing something about you that was, of course, true, right? Like he wouldn't tell you anything that wasn't true, but he was unafraid to tell you the truth all the time, all the time. So that was my first experience with him. And then you get to, then you get on the court and um, it's a, it's like a just an immersion into his way of seeing and thinking. And that's what I would say is you don't you don't realize what you're stepping into until you get there that his um, and, and we could get into the specifics of it, but his way of teaching and coaching was very direct. Um, he was a genius. He was so like a social psychologist. He could be difficult. He could be mean. Um, but really what he was trying to do was to get you to understand that hard work and to be the best version of you was the only thing that mattered to him. That was the only thing that mattered to him. And it was you know, you can't separate the person from the player was what he would often say. And, and and that was that is very true of coach.
0: So were there any memories or, or you know, moments, stories from practice that you remember that he really came down on you specifically and, and tested you?
1: You know, I think he sensed in me and this was true of me that I wanted to be good, but I hadn't played enough. I was three sport guy in college and high school. Um but he would find the thing inside of you that he knew he could push just a bit and then sort of relate that to the culture of the program. There's a show that was on Nickelodeon when I was growing up, but the coach was fond of called car 54 where, you know, um, and I can't remember it, but it was, it was this thing in there where the, the car 54 would always get lost and it would be car 54. Where are you? And yes. I forget who was in the, I, I, right now I'm, I'm thinking it was Jerry Lewis, but I can't remember, but he would say, to me, like, why aren't you an expert dribbler? And then, if I would, if I would mess up in starting the offense, just starting the offense, the guy before me, who was the point guard, was Mike Brennan, who's now the head coach at American, and he would say, "Mike Brennan, where are you?" And he would kind of look up into the rafters. This was his gift. You know, you may, you sort of hated him in the moment, but the 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 way it affected and hit you was so personal and it was so public because your teammates are kind of laughing at you. And this is, I don't know if I can do this today, but this was the genius often of coach was that he would talk about you publicly in front of your friends and, uh, and say things that were, you know, you knew were true and, and guess what? So did your peers.
0: Yeah. You probably couldn't get away with that today.
1: Um, uh, you, I-, I think it, it's, maybe you could have your him because he's, he was so gifted at it, but I have found that privately you do that and publicly you, you praise. Uh, There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that uh, works
0: more with, yeah. I mean,
1: when we have the memorial service at some point in September, and all the former players come back, you know, I wish everybody could be a fly on the wall to hear the stories because they, they come out and we all have stories about ourselves and about others and, Coach would go down the line. We called it going down the line before and after practice every day. The practices were long and he would go down, Brian, you need to work on this, Mitch, you got to do this. You know, and it was, it was rarely complimentary. It was always what was, what was stuck in you. Are you a three car garage guy? Which meant, did you grow up with three car? Did you come up, grow up with three car garage? And if so, you had to overcome that. How close did you live, live to the railroad tracks? Have you ever stolen from a dime store? You know, uh, you know. I, I bet you never did that. You know, it was like always um, more about kind of who you were becoming and what were you thinking about it the way he was? Um, and the often the answer was, no, you need to think of it this way.
0: So many coaches, right, uh, are great coaches, let's face it, because they have the best talent sometimes and they're more managers than X's and O's and some coaches are great at offense, and some coaches are great at defense. Uh, what made Coach Carrillo so great?
1: I, I love this question. I, I think that you could just say, you, if in one sentence, you could say um, that his teams with maybe less talent consistently beat or were competitive against the very best talented, talent in the country. Uh, but that would be a disservice, I think, to coach and what he was about. What he, And I can't, of course, speak for him, but the second part of the qu- question that you've originally asked me is the second chapter I got with coach was he was around practice for 10 years when I was the head coach. And it it's what he taught us to see uh, that I believe and in the way that we would think um, we believed almost um, in going into every game that we had been prepared to win the game and that, that we were almost, you were almost afraid to let coach down and knowing that, you know, and then you learned the confidence to win that game. So in the beginning, you're afraid to let him down and then you take over. And that's when he would say, you know, almost when you finally figured out you're graduating. So um, I would say that there were so many guys that came Brian to Princeton that did not think that they could pass that became great passers. And this was a, this is truly a gift that I see in all walks of life, not just basketball. Do you see what's going on around you as the coach? Can you ignore what's happening over here that doesn't matter? Can you focus on what does matter? The cheerleading practice and the balls that are bouncing over here and the visitor that's over here, are you distracted by that? Or do you see what's important? Do you see the what's happening in advance? Are you thinking ahead? of time to see that um you know a, a forward that should be scoring hasn't worked on it enough and so you can kind of catch him being good or not taking that seriously enough uh to think through it that was i think that's why he was he was constantly thinking far ahead and you knew that he was ahead of his time too you know that was the other part of it was you, you knew that there was a track record there with the way he was seeing things that was far different than anybody else you had been around.
0: When you went up against UNLV or UCLA or Villanova or any team that you knew had superior talent, um, you said, you know, all the players believed. But while you were going through it, did did you ever doubt the process or did the other players from the other team, you know, try to get in your mind like, you know, come on, guys, you know, stop stalling or stop, you know, Let's play a little bit. Run up and down the court. You know, how yeah. did you stay so disciplined in the moment and not try to get caught up in what the other team might be doing or trying to get you to do?
1: Well, first, coach always had really great assistants, and I think that they were together. So um, it, you mentioned UCLA. So I remember distinctly we had we had gotten rolled by Penn twice. We finish and tie for Penn. And we played a playoff game at Lehigh against Penn, which we won. And then coach retired. So that week we're right, We're preparing for the NCAA tournament and we draw UCLA and distinctly remember you know, the preparation was so high level, but Bill Carmody, John Thompson, Joe Scott were the assistants. But I distinctly remember a coach saying to us and he, he was happy, but he could flash that eye on you in about a second. And you knew that like, this is okay. This is the real him. And he would say, don't worry about going in for rebounds because you're not going to get them. <laughs> so as the ball went up in the air for that game, we all ran back on defense. I think that that set a tone for the game and it set a tone for us. But you knew that if you, you know, you're a freshman and you're on the floor against Texas AM and you're up six with five minutes left to go, you know, that was common for all of us. And you're like, holy crap, we're in, the, we're in this game to know that like, we probably shouldn't be in this game when we're in this game because of what we've been given and what we've been working on together, his viewpoint would be, no, you're good players. I didn't recruit you to be an Ivy league player. I cru- recruited you to be a player. And he was raising the level of all of our games. Um, so, uh, you know, and, and then he would often talk about the history of the program in front of us. So he had been there for 29 years. So we knew about the, the near misses, the Georgetown game and, And we knew about the the great performances. So he would often remind us of those things.
0: So, okay, let's talk about that that 96 game. You you mentioned so many things there. You know, having to beat Penn in, uh, you know, a one-game playoff just to get to the NCAA tournament after they had beaten you, I think, eight straight times, twice that season. And then he tells you after the game, you're filled with emotion. You win that game. You're going to the NCAA tournament and he says he's retiring, Um, how much did that motivate you more uh, to go out there and and try to get that win and maybe get the monkey off his back? Uh, He had one NCAA tournament win prior, but but there were so many near misses, like you said. How much did that motivate you?
1: I I mean, it was, um, I think, far more than we realized Mm. then. We were still a really young group. Uh, he wrote yeah, on the no board, "I am very worries, right."
0: No seniors, yeah. seniors on that team. Yeah,
1: he wrote on the board, "I am very happy. I am retiring." And Bill Carmody was sort of quickly named the next head coach, so there was continuity in what was happening. So, um, Bill Bill being a longtime assistant for coach, and I think that there was togetherness in that from the staff perspective. So there was while we were going into that game, and it could be coach's last game. All we were thinking, honestly, Brian, was we wanted to go as far away from Princeton as possible. You know, like we wanted to travel because that, you know, like we didn't get a chance to travel a lot. And I remember that um we were shooting, you get a shoot around time the day before the game, and we were kind of walking onto the floor as the UCLA players were walking off of the floor. And I think I think all of us were like, oh crap. Like they were huge and they had just won the national championship. But the, again, the level of preparation was so high. And we also knew that. It was, it was to be a low scoring game and, um, and we played a matchup, uh, and that was kind of coach's little, um, you know, the, the change of pace and the change of the game. And, but I, you know, in the moment, Sydney Johnson, we were down 41, 34 with just a couple minutes left and Sydney made a couple huge threes to kind of re- really just save us. And then, you know, of course the backdoor play to win it. And, um, you know, I, so I would, I, I, a couple moments really stand out, but they're at all like, um. We were just really lucky. And Coach told us afterwards, of course, in his own way, you know, 99 times out of 100, you lose that game. You know, that had a way of, you know, so bringing it down a little bit.
0: (laughs) One shining moment, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's all it takes, really. And and that's what, you know, makes the NCAA tournament so great. Look, it was 26 years ago, Mitch. But do you remember anything from that huddle? You know, it's 41-41. You you erase that seven-point deficit, 21 seconds left. Uh, You get the rebound. You call timeout. And uh, did he draw up that backdoor play uh, yeah. to Willis?
1: We had, uh, and you know, like revisionist history here. you know, <laughs> but we—I think all of us—we've sort of talked about this game at the 25th anniversary of the game. But my memory of it is, we we rarely called timeouts. But as we crossed half court, I could see Coach standing with his hands in a timeout formation, like timeout. And so I remember sprinting over there. And the coaches were together and we had a play called center forward backdoor. Most of what's most of what we do now and even then is named exactly as it is. So you hit the throw the forward, the ball to the center, then the forward cuts back door. And we worked on this play a lot, but the league and the league, you never got it. Everybody had scouted it. So we knew we weren't going to get it. So it was very distinct. And I think it was Joe Scott, like, hey, run center, forward, backdoor, and it's it's not going to be there then get it the second time. And coach often said to us, you know, you, you've got to be a good guile is the most important thing. Uh, acting, uh, mm. acting like it's not there. So the fake was to the, the cut. It's not there. Act like you're going to the secondary option. And then Gabe run back out to the three point line and then do it again. And it was like, the pass was perfect. The layup was perfect. Thread of the needle. So, um, you know, I mean, again, like we, um, a play we had run a lot, but it wasn't always the one we were able to get.
0: The the amount, it's just it's just amazing. I looked up some of the highlights of that, and and you're right. I mean, that's a freshman making that play too, and 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 Gabe Lewis and 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 going in there. Um, you're you remember that that iconic picture of you with your hands in the air and, you know, jumping up and down. Um, you know, what does that win? mean to you to this day um and all the people that were there with you uh that you're still friends with your teammates
1: so i'm the coach here now and very this is very distinct for me Uh, i would like my own players in the program to have a memory like that now it is i i very difficult to talk about yourself and i don't as the head coach so i don't bring this up with the the current team ever uh because they they, they, don't, they like it, but they don't care. And they, they want their own vision. And that's really what we're trying to do. I mean, as much as Coach was a great coach, he barely talked about himself as a player. Uh, so that's first. Second would be that, you know, I remember running off of the court and a reporter kind of grabbed me by the shirt, a, a photographer, and he says, hey, I just got a great shot of you. And, you know, I, I distinctly remember him looking me right in the eye. And that photo then, you know, this is a, so more of the age of newspapers was all over the country. What we didn't realize was it was also an iconic moment and a special moment for all of the current students here on our campus. Thursday nights tend to be a night to go out on Princeton's campus. So the campus erupted and it was a, I've heard from many of our classmates and friends around since then that it was one of their favorite nights here at school. So you're doing something that you don't realize that's great for the university. And then it's, it's a moment and your friends and peers. And, and, you know, it's, it's just, it feels the older you get, the more special it is. Um, I just feel a lot of gratitude for being a part of that. And all of it's because of coach, all of it, all of it is because of his teaching and giving us all a chance to be there with him. And, uh, you know, we, most of us were, you know, there was a couple, a handful of guys that were recruiting very hard, highly, but most of us were, you know, guys that he made a lot better, and we were all beneficiaries of his teaching and coaching. And, and what's interesting, Brian, on that team is I think six former, you know, soon to be former uh, uh, Division One head coaches: um, Bill, Joe, John, um, myself, Cindy Johnson, and Brian Earl. Uh, so well, a lot of a lot came out of that game. I, you,
0: It's like you're reading my notes. (laughs) It's like you're reading my notes. That's exactly where I was going to go. Uh, The assistant coaches from that game, who then became head coaches, you already mentioned them. John Thompson III, Bill Carmody, and Joe Scott all became head coaches. And then the players in that game, um, you just mentioned, right? Brian Earl, yourself. Yeah. Uh, Sidney Johnson. Who am I missing? Mike, Mike Brennan or no?
1: Mike Brennan was not on that team. Okay. He was the year, maybe the year before and Chris Moody. So right before us was Chris Moody and Mike Brennan, who were also head coaches right now.
0: Right. I mean, the the lineage in that game alone, just, just, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. All of the, the line of coaches that have come from Pete Carrillo, if that doesn't talk about
1: his greatness, I don't know what does. You know, I, I. Tried to say this in the last couple of days as many different ways as I can, but um, coach is known for the Princeton offense, right? Uh, For those of us that have had the chance to now be coaches or have worked for him, he's also like so much of what we say and what we're doing in practices and how we talk should be cited every second of the day of what he would say. The pass needs to be on the money. Uh, hey, hey, fellows! These are free points. We got to get every one of them as it relates to free throws. Don't just see that, uh, you know, just just the way he would talk and think. Um, so that's that's first. And the second is how far ahead he was. We think and his impact on the game globally. for skilled shooters playing around a very skilled post is the modern game. In 1987, when they introduced the three-point line, the Princeton teams took upwards of 50% of their shots from three and made close to 50% of their three-point shots. The rest of the game was just way in the dark ages there. I mean, he was really like money ballish and how far ahead he was of his time. And most of the people that would come visit our practices, and he would not allow many people to come watch practice because he would often say when coaches would call, he would, he would, he'd answer the phone basketball office. Somebody say, Hey, I want to learn about the Princeton office. And he would say, figure it out like I did. And he would hang up. (laughs) Uh, he was protective of it. And I think that maybe at the end of his time with him um, retiring and then Bill taking over, a lot of credit should go to Bill, Joe and John who were, you know, sort of the the coaches, the assistants were just terrific ambassadors for his legacy and also great teachers in their own right. And coaches that we all kind of like got to celebrate coach, you know, uh, and and our own ways, and in, in terms of how we took over these programs and started to get into coaching, and um, you know, it's it's really like a, 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 a your own way of honoring him. To it's it's hard to put into words, but um, you know, and it's hard to. It, it, he would often say to even me, "Don't be me, don't be me." When he would watch practices, and um, it's a complicated way of him saying, like, um, "To you know, be yourself." That was the most thing he would always say, be yourself, see what you see, but be yourself.
0: So Mitch, if there's, as we wrap up this interview and celebrate coach Kirill, if he was sitting next to you today, drinking coffee with you at that table, Mitch albums, just, you know, one more day, that book. uh, What would you say to coach right now?
1: Well, I got the opportunity to say this to him again in this second chapter, but I, I would tell him that I love him and he uh, and I, and then I would do a lot of listening, Brian. Uh, he would, he would say to me a couple of things, um, ask me what I see. And so I felt like, while my players did not get an opportunity to play for him. One of the things that, um, he was very intimidating to be around him at times, but I was, um, happy that so many of my players got a chance to be, have access to him um, because he did have a lot to offer. It wasn't always easy. Um, uh, but if you asked him what he saw, he would tell you, and he had a lot to give there. And then I'd tell him, I loved him. And and that was as a player, it was n- largely that was not something that you would say to him, <laughs> you know, you didn't want to give it to him and he would bristle at that, but, um, he didn't give out compliments. He didn't say a lot that he, how he felt about me and, and a lot of people have played for him. But if anybody out there is listening that, that did play for him, he, he cared a great deal about other people. He had a hard time expressing it, but it was a way of, um, me letting him know I, I how much I care about him and, um, and how much, how impactful he was in my life and so many others. And so I'd want him to know that.
0: Yeah. Like a, like a cantaloupe, you know, tough on the outside, soft on the inside.
1: Yeah. I don't know about soft on the inside with him, but <laughs> I like the analogy. Uh,
0: no, listen, fantastic. You, you said earlier, Mitch, uh, you're going to celebrate coach this year at Princeton. Yeah. Oh, so, so how do you, as head coach and uh, how, how are you, how do you plan to honor
1: coach Carrell? Well, we're, we, we've got to do something in the family's wishes would the, we would do some sort of a memorial here at Jadwin. And that was coach's favorite place right here in Princeton. And we'll do that. And, it's very clear to all of us what was important to him. And what's important to him is that, that, that you as teammates are together and that you have a shared experience, a brotherhood, a bond together. And now we get to do that in, around him and in his memory and, and drink beer together. That would be what he would <laughs> want us all to do. Um, so, uh, I think that that's the, the first way of honoring him. And then we're going to do a, a lot of honoring publicly, uh, you know, coach wore bow ties when he coached. Um, mm-hmm. well, maybe there's a way for us to do that in, as coaches in the country. And uh, we're going to have some really special ways to honor him here at the university. But the first way to do it is is to play well, you know, as, as the current team. And so that's our charge here is to to play hard, play well, play together. Um, that would be what he would want.
0: Uh, it's just fantastic. Mitch, I, I appreciate, you know, uh, 30 minutes of your time uh, It oh. flew by. I enjoyed listening to all the stories and your memories and and who better to talk about it than uh, a player who went through the system and and uh was a player under Pete Carroll and is now uh in Pete Carroll's shoes on Pete Carroll court at Jadwin gym than than Mitch Henderson. So Brian, Brian it,
1: it, this is a real honor and I I'm I'm uh I'm right now I'm the head coach at Princeton you know and I'm I'm the voice here in one way one voice but there's hundreds of voices that are very important to the legacy of Coach, and I'm really um, excited for all, all everybody to be able to share their words here. And this is a real pleasure to t- to be able to to talk about him with you, Brian. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. Best of luck this season. You guys came right. within a whisker last year. Yeah. This year, hopefully, you cut down the nets.
1: Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it.
0: Okay. There it is. Mitch Henderson, head coach of Princeton, 26 years ago. 1996, Mitch Henderson, Sidney Johnson, Gabe Llewellis, Steve Goodrich, Brian Earle were shocking UCLA and giving Pete Carroll that one shining moment. We lost a legend, but Pete Carroll forever has left his mark on this game from New Jersey to California to China, and Europe, across the globe, his life, his legacy, his Princeton offense lives on in today's game. I think it would be fitting to end the podcast with this quote by Coach Carrill. While he was still coaching at Princeton, he once said this about winning a national championship, and I quote, winning a national championship is not something you're going to see us do at Princeton. I resigned myself to that years ago. What does it mean anyway? When I'm dead, maybe two guys will walk past my grave and one will say to the other, poor guy, never won a national championship. And I won't hear a word they say. The brilliance of Pete Carrill. Thank you to Mitch Henderson. Thank you. I do appreciate you listening to this special podcast honoring the legacy, and life of Pete Carrillo. I'll be back very soon with another podcast. My name is Brian Ellis. Give us a follow. Tell your friends about it. The Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Until the next one, so long.